So today, like I said earlier, today marks one of my favorite days on the church calendar. Um, and it is, if, even if I hadn't uh, told you at the beginning from the readings, you would have figured out that this is Transfiguration Sunday. Those are our readings, and that's what we're focusing on this morning. Um, and I told you before in, the, in past years, because um, we take this day off every year to talk about this Transfiguration. Uh, we don't do that with every um, day on the church calendar, but uh, this one's important, and this one is a, is a big deal to us. And I like teaching this one, especially to, um, Melissa, you like this, to our, our preschoolers, um, because I like to get them to say the word Transfiguration. There's, there's a party right there trying to figure that out. You'd be surprised what you get. So, okay, so on the church calendar, this is the last day, uh, the last Sunday of Epiphany. So, like I said, um, Wednesday night is, is the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday. So it's kind of the bridge, the, ga- the bridge between um, Epiphany and, and Lent. I'm going to explain all that in, in just a second. So we, after we get through Lent, of course, then we get to the Easter um, season. Remember, Easter isn't just one Sunday, it's a season. So now, um, this morning, I want to jump right into it. I want to look at that transfiguration in three kind of different ways, three different angles. Um, and we're going to be looking at it different than you probably have in the past, but that's what we do here. And, but all these angles, all the things that we're talking about should be pointing you um, to uh, letting this historical moment, this historical event, um, change our lives, change the way we view God and change the way we worship Him, change the way we praise Him. So in order to get things um, set right, I like to set the table a little bit. Um, I want to get some historical content, context here um, to set the stage. So this historical account is in three of the four Gospels, and we're going to be looking at snips from all of them. Um, but where it is chronologically is, is important, too. It's in the 17th chapter of Matthew. Okay, so if we think about that for a second, uh, the next couple chapters of Matthew is mostly read. There's a lot of Jesus teaching, a lot of Jesus talking. Um, it does say parenthetically almost that he goes from one town to the next, but there's not a lot of time that happens between chapter 17 and chapter 21 of Matthew. Chapter 21 of Matthew has Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday. So we're at towards the end of his ministry. The disciples have been walking around with him for about three years, give or take, whatever, but they've been with him for a while. They've been watching him teach. They've been watching the miracles. They've been with him, and they, they know who he is. So to it, now backing up, a little bit from chapter 17 that we're going to see here in a second, back up to chapter 16. Again, still getting some context here set in place where we are and and the mentality that's going on here. Chapter 16, Jesus asks the disciples one of the most important questions, if not the most important question, that he can ask you in your life. I want to look at uh, Matthew 16. I'm going to look at, uh, start in verse 13. We're going to look at a couple verses. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he, said, he asked them this, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? Verse 14, well... They replied, some say John the Baptist, which I don't completely understand, but I get the idea. Some say Elijah, which actually makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about that um, in a different series down the road here. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus would be like, okay, cool, interesting. Then he asks the, the question that really we should all ponder all the time. Then he asks them, who do you say I am? That's the important question. Who do you say Jesus is and who is he in your life? Now, the disciples probably all wanted to answer that, but Peter is quick with the, on, the, on the jump. So he says in verse 16, Peter answered him, You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the one that we've been waiting. You are the chosen one. 
You are it. Like I said, they've been with him for three years. They know without a shadow of a doubt. 100% they know who Jesus is and what he is doing there, right? Okay, so they understand that whole situation. Although they don't completely grasp the situation. Because that's verse 16, right? Verse 20 says, Jesus sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Right? And then there's the part that confused them, the part that kind of the continuing, the other half of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, you know, the rest of the story. Verse 21. It's a long verse, but look what happens here. From then on, see, this just happened. Jesus just asked, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one, the one we've been waiting for. Jesus said, cool, you got it. Don't tell anybody. The next verse is this. From then on, Jesus began to tell the disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. He wasn't speaking in parables. He wasn't speaking in analogies. He said it's plainly, right? It's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the law. That's all three of them. Sadducees, scribes, the, the Pharisees, all of them. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. That whole being killed part really knocked the disciples off their rocker. And it really made them stagger. It's like a haymaker to the chin, right? Okay, so Jesus says, you understand that I'm the Christ. You understand that I'm the Messiah because you just said that. But here's the thing. The Messiah, the Christ, must suffer and die. I don't even know if I need to really even mention that. And then he said, not only suffer and die, but then being raised on the third day. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that. So now with that as a backdrop, Jesus takes the the leaders, the disciples who are the leaders, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up the hill with him, up the mountain with him, so they can experience what's about to happen here. And it says, for at least for a moment, they were alone. But now let's just jump to chapter 17, verse uh, verse 2, I think it is. Um, And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus was transfigured before them. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about this word a lot here in, in just a couple of minutes. But first I want to talk about what's that look like. Well, his face shone like the sun. Um, his garment became as white as light. Mark says you can't wash anything that white. Luke said it was like trying to look at a bolt of lightning. It was that bright and that intense. So the way this reads... They no sooner got there, and Jesus turns so bright white that you could hardly stand to look at him or look in his direction. And while they're trying to look in his direction, two figures appear. Let's skip over to how Mark says it. Mark 9, 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, sometimes I read this. And like I said, the Bible should be active to you. The Bible should be something that we read with, with curiosity and something that uh, makes us wonder and makes us think and makes us um, you know, go into different places. So now sometimes when I read things like this, I think about not only who was there, but I'm thinking about who wasn't there. Because there could have been a lot of other people standing up on that mountain with Jesus. Take Adam, for example, the first human, Right? Walked with God in the cool of the garden. Named all the animals. Adam, you know, could submit a resume that would be pretty strong to be the guy standing up on this mountain with Jesus. A couple chapters later, we got this guy named Abraham. We call him Father Abraham. Father of the Hebrew nation. God calls Abraham his friend. I'd put that at the top of my resume if I were Abraham and say, yeah, I want to be the guy on top of that mountain. But it's not Abraham either. A couple generations later, we got a guy by the name of Jacob who God literally changed his name to Israel. 
Jacob had 12 sons that represent more or less the, the tribes of Israel. Right? The 12 tribes of Israel come out of Jacob. Wrestled with God, but Jacob isn't standing there. And neither is one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. His brothers hated him, threw him down in a well. He got sold into slavery and then basically saved the known world because God was with him. Joseph's not there. But we, who do we have up here? We got Moses, we got Elijah, we got Moses representing the law. We even call it the law of Moses, first five books of the Bible. The law of Moses, not Moses' law, but the law that God gave to Moses to write down for everybody. And then we got Elijah representing the prophets. Seventeen prophets, by the way. Lamentations is in there, too. Seventeen prophets. We call five major prophets and twelve minor prophets. Not because they're more or less important, but because of how long the books are. The twelve prophets at the end are kind of short snippets compared to some of the other ones, like Isaiah. And it's no coincidence that Jesus talks about and mentions the law and the prophets time and time and time again. I don't have a slide, but I think it's Matthew 5, 17 that Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Both Moses and Elijah had rather unusual exits in the world. Moses on the doorstep of the promised land, but God said, all right, um, we need some new blood in here, and we need, we need Joshua to bring everybody into the promised land. So God took Moses. And then in Jude, Jude 9 says that Jesus, no, I'm sorry, that uh, Archangel Gabriel and, and Satan fought over the body of Moses, and then God buried Moses, it says, so that no one would ever be able to find him. Elijah is one of the only two people in the Bible who actually didn't die. Uh, this, he's there with Elisha, his, his disciple. And this chariot of fire and these horses of fire kind of separate the two, and then Elijah gets taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. A lot of crazy stuff going on here. But here's here's where they are, right? So let's put that on on hold for just a second. Like I said, um, this is the last Sunday of Epiphany. Um, This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and, and I also mentioned that the church celebrates seasons. Right? It's important for us, just like we celebrate seasons here in Wisconsin. We have four seasons, and we're very proud of that, right? That, maybe not at this very moment, but some of these seasons last a little bit long. But the seasons of the church, we're coming out of the season called Epiphany. Epiphany, now, okay, so, you know, the argument, I think Epiphany is the most important season of the church year. And now I understand, most people will say the argument is between Christmas and Easter, and I, and I get that. But Christmas and Easter are about what God has done. Amazing things, don't get me wrong, and I'm not diminishing anything here. But in a lot of ways, we're just kind of observers at Christmas and at Easter of what God has done. Yes, we make that a part of our lives, but we're watching what's happening, kind of like watching a, a professional sporting event. You know, we gain a lot of, of, of satisfaction from watching the Packers win, but we're not on the field um, helping them when run on the field doing that. Epiphany is different, though. Epiphany, the season of Epiphany, is about what, who you are in Christ and who you want to become in Christ. That's why we kicked off this sermon series a while ago called First Things First. Right? We're getting things, our priorities in straight, straight in line so that God can change us. God can grow us, and we can grow closer to him. That's what Epiphany is all about, who we are in Christ when we open our hearts to him, when we open our hearts to him and allow him into our lives and actually allow him to change us. And we don't fight that. We don't, we don't kick at the goads, as they say. But let's go back to that mountaintop for just a second. 
You know, I took a class when I was an undergrad um, called Theater Appreciation. So we studied plays and we looked at some different things, you know, old ones, new ones. And, and my professor would always ask a question, and it took me a, a little bit to understand it, and I want you to understand this question to, this morning. Um, he would ask, whose play is this? We would read through it, and he would ask us, whose play, which, which character would we say belongs to that play, or the play belongs to that character? And you might think, well, it's the person um, who has the most lines. And you might think it's the person, or the character, rather, that appears in the most scenes, but that's not always the case. Um, I watched a new um, uh, kind of um, idea about Mary Poppins. Um, Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney. It's actually kind of the creation of Mary Poppins. I don't know if you guys have seen it. But the author of of Mary Poppins is there, and she's talking about, she's very picky about how this whole play is going to go down or how the whole movie is going to go down. And she says this. She says, the, the whole thing is not about Mary Poppins. The whole thing is about George Banks, who gets changed through this whole thing. George Banks, if you watch it and you think about it, he's a pretty, not a minor character, but he's not, he's not the major character. He's a big character in there. But sometimes we, we, we focus on one thing when really we should be concentrating on, on the other. And that's what my theater teacher was trying to get us to understand. That it's not always the one that's in the, in the most scenes, or it's not the one um, that has the most lines. So now, um, we might look, at, um, we might look at, um, at the transfiguration and get a little confused about whose scene is this? Whose historical account is this? Because just when we think we, we've seen everything, the disciples maybe I should say, just when they thought they saw everything, Jesus so bright, it was like looking at a bolt of lightning that's standing there. I mean, it's, it's so dazzling, we can't even look at it. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up, right? And they don't, they're starting to freak out. They don't know. And then the next thing that happens is this voice comes down from heaven. Let's look at Luke. Like I said, we're going to kind of jump all over and talk about all three of these Gospels. Luke 9.35 says, a God shows up. A voice came down from the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We've talked many times about the difference between hearing something and listening to something. Listening, listening is active. We can hear something. If we drop something over here, we can hear. But listening is active. It's something that we, that we do on a conscious level. Right? And this is kind of a familiar line, yet it's a little bit different. This is basically what happened when Jesus was baptized, but the wording is a, is a little bit different. Because at, at Jesus' baptism, that, that line is mostly for Jesus at his baptism to encourage him about what's going on here. But who's God talking to here? He's not talking to Jesus. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. He's not talking to Moses and Elijah, so there's only one group of people left. That's the disciples he's talking to. So my question for you then this morning, members of the jury, is who is the transfiguration for? Who is this play for? Who is this historical moment for? It's for these disciples. These disciples that had started to lose their faith because of what we just read in chapter 16. Said without a shadow of a doubt, 100%, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the chosen one, you're the one we've been waiting for. He said, yeah, but there's just one thing, I'm going I'm to die. And they just got knocked off the rocker. They didn't know what, they were staggered. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to handle it. So Jesus, God, says, all right, now is the time for us to go and really show you what's happening here. He was changed in front of them. 
Right? It's for these disciples who started to lose faith in, in the one that they knew who was the Messiah. The word epiphany means to make known. Jesus made himself known to them. The word epiphany also means to unveil something, to reveal something. So that's what, what Peter, you know, when Peter was talking to Jesus, after Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die, Peter pulled him aside and said, you've got to stop saying that stuff because it's really going to mess some things up. And Jesus said, you better get things straight, and you better get it straight right now. You better figure this out. So maybe we think of the word epiphany. You know, we kind of misuse it a little bit in the English language when we say it. We kind of say it like a joke, right? We had this epiphany, which is a moment, which is an instant, right? And that certainly is part of the definition. But sometimes an epiphany takes a minute to sink in. Sometimes an epiphany is a process. In fact, the most important event that happened on that mountain wasn't Jesus turning a dazzling bright light or bright white. And it wasn't, the most important thing was not um, Elijah and Moses showing up. And the most significant thing was not God speaking. It was a culmination of those three things. And so the most important thing that happened was the change in the hearts and the minds of those confused disciples. They had, like I said, begun to, come, to get confused again. They'd walked with Jesus for three years and saw all those things that we read about in the Bible. All those miracles, all those healings, all those amazing teachings that he did. They saw all of it. And without a shadow of a doubt, 100%, they knew who he was and they were convinced. But then he started talking about dying and raising up again. And this didn't make any sense to anybody. They couldn't get past that whole dying part that we're going to talk about through Lent. But God, through his mercy, brought these three disciples, the disciple, the leaders of the disciples, up to that mountaintop to witness that conversation between God the Son, Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophet. And they were talking about Jesus' glorious exodus. Look at this in verse, uh, back in Luke 9, 30 and 31. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. All right. And when I read this, I'm thinking, man, I would love to have a time machine and just be a part of that conversation. I'm going to make sure that I got some notes, maybe a recorder, so I can get this and not forget it. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his, Jesus' exodus from this world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Talking about Jesus' exodus, his glorious exodus, his departure from the world. The word exodus means certainly an exit, right? We talk about how the the Israelites um, exited out of Egypt, that exodus out of Egypt. But that's fallen really short of the rest of the definition of that word. It really means this, to fulfill one's purpose. The definition of the word, the Greek definition of the word exodus means to fulfill one's purpose. They were glorious to see. They were speaking about Jesus fulfilling his purpose, leaving this world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. It can also mean, and I don't want to give, make too big a deal of this, but it can also mean to close one's career. So to end a chapter of your life, or to end a chapter. So this chapter in Jesus was ending. But first things first, Jesus was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is the Greek word metamorpheo, which where we get our word metamorphosis. And I'm sure you knew I was coming at this at some point or another. 
And it really only happens two places, this word metamorphosis only happens two places in the New Testament. It happens more than a couple of times, but all, most of them point to what we're talking about right here, about, about Jesus being transformed here on that mountain. The one other place is where I want us to hang our hat this morning is Romans 12.2. And I'm just going to show you the first half of that verse. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the Greek language has a, a unique way of dealing with verbs. Right? And I want to show you the first one. Do not be conformed. Now, this verb means something that you're doing to yourself. Do not conform yourself to this world. In other words, don't copy the ways of this world. Don't become a part of this world. Don't change your hair because people change their hair. Don't do the things that people are doing just because they're doing it and you want to be a part of this world. That's something we do to ourselves. Don't conform yourself to this world. The other part, though, is a different verb. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's something that's being done to you. Allow yourself to be transformed. Allow God to change you from the inside out, to transform you. Something that God does to you, and this refers to a permanent state, a new creation. And since, by the way, we're at the end of Epiphany and about to go into Lent, um, I thought I'd save the children's sermon for this moment. So you guys come up for a second with me. And I'm going to do something different today. Would you guys just kind of sit in this pew or one of the pews up in the front? Don't come all the way up in front this morning. Come on. I'll grab the lollipops. <laughs> just grab a seat in one of those pews there. I got a magic trick for you this morning. First thing I'm going to do First thing I'm going to do, and this is for everybody, I'm going to read your minds. I want you to think of, now don't say it out loud, nobody shout out anything, don't give it away. I want you to think of your favorite animal, or let's say your favorite creature, so it can be animal, bird, anything, fish. Just think of your favorite one. Don't don't say it, think of it, because I've got it right here in this box. Because believe it or not, everybody's thinking the same thing right now. Impossible, right? You are all thinking of... A caterpillar. No, no, no. I was thinking of a fish. A fish, man. I thought I had it. All right. So nobody thinks of the caterpillar as, as anything uh, glorious, anything spectacular. In fact, we think of the caterpillar as kind of lowly in life, right? In fact, a good day for a caterpillar, uh, this is what's on the caterpillar's agenda. Eat as many leaves as possible and don't be eaten by a bird. And that's a successful day for the caterpillar. But then something crazy happens. There's a plot twist with a caterpillar that we don't see anywhere else in nature. It gets down and gets put into a cocoon. Now, I don't have a cocoon with me, but this piece of paper will work. Excuse me. So this this caterpillar gets tucked down and shoved into a pretty tight situation where it's kind of difficult, it's really small, um, it's really um, a challenge for them to be in. In fact, I need a little tool here to stuff that in. And the caterpillar, now, it, it gets put away, and it doesn't really know exactly what's happening to it. And that kind of can be part, like, in our lives. 
we can get put in some pretty tight spots. We can get crammed into some pretty tight areas and not know exactly why. And as a matter of fact, if we were really honest with ourselves, we would say that we really didn't want to be there in the first place. But then there's a lesson that we can learn from that lowly caterpillar when it's in that really tight situation, that tight spot that's almost impossible to get out of. Are you cheering me on? (laughs) Or maybe he's heckling, I'm not sure. There's a lesson that we can learn from that caterpillar because God makes this amazing transformation in it. We get in these tight spots and we don't know exactly what God is doing in our lives. But he's changing us from the inside out. He's transforming us. And just like this caterpillar, now this caterpillar gets changed into something incredible and something amazing. Gets changed into this butterfly. See it again? Wait, hold your applause. There's more coming. I want to pop up. I want to pop up. Well, where'd the other one go then, Smarty? Huh? Look at that. Pop up Romans 12, 2 again. Because I don't want us to lose the point. Romans 12, 2. Conformed is something we do to ourselves. Transformed is something that God does for us. Allow ourselves to be transformed, and God has amazing plans for us. And yes, life gets tough sometimes. We get put down into some pretty tight situations that we don't understand. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, so Jesus revealed himself to them. He gave them that epiphany moment. He gives us those moments. Sometimes those moments come from a a little trick on a stage. Sometimes they come from us reading his word. Sometimes they come from us a word from somebody else. But the, the key to it is you. Allowing yourself to be transformed. Not to dig into our ways and the ways of the world, but allow God to change you from the inside out. And like I said, that word transformed means it's a permanent change. Do you think this butterfly would like to go back to being a caterpillar and crawling around and eating leaves, or do you think they would rather fly around and be this beautiful, amazing creature? Why would we want to go back to something we used to be when God has bigger plans for us? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. I got some lollipops for you guys.